First Timothy chapter 3, continuing ex- instructions for the church. This is a new <clears throat> section. Let's read verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The life and health of God's people depends on how steadfastly the church heeds these instructions about the qualifications for elder. The longevity and blessing of any church will depend on whether it calls qualified men to the eldership. As we study these qualifications, I believe you will see that Too much is at stake to ignore these qualifications or to gloss over them because this isn't one of the most exciting passages of Scripture or to fudge, to bend any rules, or to compromise. What is at stake here is nothing less than the gospel, the salvation of precious souls or the the loss of souls to eternal damnation. And also at stake is the endurance of a particular church. Well, these qualifications may be used to test men who would be potential elders, and they are also for the use of current elders for self-evaluation that all may grow in grace. And if you are a boy who believes on the Lord Jesus, even if you can't be an elder right now, you should still be asking, what kind of character should I have when I grow up that will please God and demonstrate that I'm a product of the Holy Spirit's work in me. Well, this list tells you. Sometimes your parents, uh, or maybe yourself, you've taken a, a picture with your camera or your phone of a piece of paper, a shopping list or something like that, so that you can refer back to it later. Well, today, you should take a mental snapshot of these qualifications and use them like a list of life goals. Strive to attain them, and you'll never be sorry you did. You won't go wrong in life. And just in case God calls you to the eldership, you will be ready. Having good elders is a blessing to the church because everyone is encouraged and strengthened in walking with the Lord. Elders are there to protect the flock and to feed it and to stir them up to goodness and holiness in order that they may see the Lord And so as we study God's word, let's do it believingly, eagerly. And so these qualifications break down into basically two kinds, personal character and life relationships. 
Today, we'll just take part of the first one, that is uh, personal character. And so first, the church needs elders with these personal character qualifications. The church needs elders with character. Verse 1 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Trustworthy sayings are principled maxims for the early church. God says the office of overseer is noble. To desire it was to desire a noble work, so much so that it could be written like a proverb for the church to remember. This office is a work, and that's going to be a theme that we never get away from. It is not an office for receiving admiration. It's not there for someone to have a good salary or to practice self-importance or to gain prestige. It isn't an office for someone who wants to tell other people what to do. It's no place to be seen and heard. It's a task, a work of servant humility. It's a place for men who love the Lord's glory more than their own glory and who will die to self and seek the good of Christ's people. Before we go any further, it is really important to mention what this office is and what it is not. The word overseer is the Greek word episkopos, from which we get the word episcopal, which means rule by bishops. Indeed, the word episkopos is sometimes translated bishop. If you're holding a King James Bible, it says bishop. The meaning is to oversee, so an overseer. And the term bishop has some unfortunate images for most people. It either suggests Roman Catholic clergy or else a class of Anglican clergy who supervise the lesser priests. For example, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the highest bishop in the Anglican Church. In other words, to be a bishop is supposedly a promotion above your average minister. Methodists, Anglicans, Episcopalians, and in their own way, Roman Catholics have church government ruled by bishops. Now, we're here in a Presbyterian church, and we believe that the only ordinary form of church government that there should be anywhere in the world is Presbyterian, because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. And that word Presbyterian means ruled by elders. And so you may wonder, well, if this scripture is talking about bishops and your Presbyterian church doesn't have any bishops, well, where have we gone wrong? And the answer is that according to the Bible, every presbyter or elder is a bishop and every bishop is also a presbyter. By the way, the apostles were elders but not every elder was an apostle. And the apostles appointed elders to take up gospel ministry after them perpetually in the church. And wherever you get to qualifications for overseer or bishop and qualifications for elder, what you find is that you're talking about the same thing. Here the word is overseer. If we were to turn over to Titus 1, we would see that Titus was to appoint elders or presbyters in every town. And then immediately, Paul said these elders were overseers. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, exhorts the elders. 
He says, I'm a fellow elder. And then he says, exercise oversight or bishop the flock of God. In Acts 20, Paul calls for the elders of the church and exhorts them saying, pay attention to the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or bishops. Again, every elder is a bishop, so there is no superior class of ministers called bishops. Now, you may be saying, well, why do I care? Well, one reason is that you need to know which leadership to follow. If you meet a Roman Catholic, they're going to tell you you need to listen to a bishop, the officer of the Holy See. And that bishop will tell you something different. He'll say you have to work for your justification and pray to Mary and be afraid of purgatory and so on, things God forbids. But you also want to know that Presbyterianism is not just someone's good idea. It is God's idea for the government of the church. And it is the only true, biblical, and God-glorifying government. And lastly, if you love freedom, both in the church and in civil society, you love Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism promotes freedom of conscience and the freedom of every Christian to choose qualified men to office who love Christ and who will work for the good of the flock. Well, that's freedom from ecclesiastical tyranny. This is an office for a man to aspire to. To aspire means to reach after it, to stretch oneself for it, and to be passionate about it. Men, we ought to inwardly desire all that is noble. It is right to want to honor God and to have honor from God, not from man, but from God. And if a man is holding back, this trustworthy saying is here to encourage him to move forward toward the work. And that means a man is supposed to act on his desire, studying, being discipled, and coming under a period of testing in his church to see if he's right for the office. And who wouldn't want a noble work? Out in the world, it would have been thought to be a very important position to be a king's ambassador. Just like today, to be ambassador to a president or for a nation is a high calling. An ambassador is important. But they work for this world's premiers and presidents and kings who are all deficient in grace and majesty. But God is holy, righteous, merciful, and good. To represent him before men is a noble work. The office of overseer Being a work is exactly the wrong office for someone wanting the praise of men. And what is, what is the nature of the work? What is the nature of the work? And the first thing is seeing oneself in humble perspective. Elders have to believe that they have been sent by Christ to a church in order to look to its welfare. Elders have to take heed and they have to feed and they have to oversee. There in Acts 20, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, and you should listen for some of these key words, pay careful attention or take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, 
which he has obtained with his own blood. Elders must pay attention to each member's walk before God. After all, every member has a responsibility to take heed to every other member. You can find that in Hebrews 10.24 where it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So elders who have the, the task of oversight must even more take heed to every member's walk. They have to ask the questions. How is your walk with God? Are you praying? How's your marriage? What are your children learning in school? Are your children learning God's ways? Are you dying to your sin? And if elders become aware of some spiritual problem or area of trouble, they have to get to work immediately on a solution. And if false teachers ever get close to a congregation like they did here in Ephesus, where Timothy is, the elders have to use the word of God like a sword to defend the flock and to help the members put on their spiritual armor. Elders also teach or feed the flock. Even though the minister stands in the pulpit, he's just the voice of the session of elders. The whole eldership's duty is making sure that the church meetings edify the congregation. There is catechizing to be done, instructing, comforting, and exhorting. Elders devote themselves to prayer during the week, praying for God's power to be had in the preaching of the word. Elders preach, and they live in an exemplary way so that the members can follow their example. Elders administer the sacraments, and they use the keys of the kingdom, and they visit the sick. Elders oversee the whole life of the church. That's what the eldership is. That's what an overseer is. And for this spiritual office, the Lord requires that elders have character that is ethically above reproach. They need to have character that is above reproach. Verse 2, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. We're going to spend the rest of the time today talking about character qualifications. <clears throat> Since I want to talk about an elder's relationships in another sermon, I'm going to skip one or two items in this list and pick that up in that other sermon. So let's get first to this matter of being above reproach. The King James says blameless. That means the standard is high. Character counts and counts big. This is not a Talking about a person's values, the way people talk about their values, and you know that really just means moral preferences, as in you prefer this and I prefer that, where there's no standard of right and wrong, as you know there is no such thing as that in this life, and it certainly has no place in the eldership. The elder's character must be virtuous. In other words, his life has to be lived Morally before God because he knows God is righteous and he rewards righteous deeds and judges evil. And so the standard is high. But if the standard were moral perfection, no one could do it. Except God. Only the Lord Jesus was a man of moral blamelessness who never sinned. And yet God is is communicating something to the church about character. He's communicating about a man's noticeable conduct. 
above reproach means no charges of moral misconduct can stick to him. He is unimpeachable. This is true inside the church and outside. As Paul says in verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders. And we know that doesn't mean that people won't hate him or accuse him of wrong, but it means that the grounds of people's accusations will be shown in time to be false and baseless. As you know, Christians must endure hostilities from those who hate God. It's not unusual for elders to suffer false accusations. Christ said a servant is not greater than his master. And he says if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And that's why he said also, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Matthew 5. So though elders sometimes face made-up charges, The charges will be groundless, and they will still be above reproach. Well, the list that follows is a list about the particular areas of an elder's life. These are areas of being above reproach. These are things that should be noticeable about an elder or an elder candidate. Passing over marriage for the moment, the next qualification for an elder is that he is sober-minded. The King James says vigilant, which means watchful. It could also mean sober, having to do with alcohol, but in the next verse, the condition for drink is not a drunkard, which would seem to be a duplicate thought. So I think this characteristic is really sober-minded. This one doesn't seem to be about alcohol. This is about being clear-headed. In other words, he's a serious man, a sober-minded man. And it's actually easier to see what sober-mindedness looks like if you look at its opposite, which would be levity or frivolity, silliness or hilarity. A man who isn't sober-minded is goofy. He's funny. He likes to draw a crowd and to get attention. He likes it when people think he's witty. Uh, When he comes into a room, he's got a dramatic act to make people laugh. And he says silly things. Well, such levity tends to make any person heedless of spiritual things. And an elder always has to be able to take heed. Silliness can make a man thoughtless and inconsiderate of people. Silly people cross boundaries and proprieties. And an elder can't be like that. An elder usually needs to avoid joking. That's not to say he can't ever make or enjoy a joke. He doesn't have to be morose and gloomy. But people think a joker is occupied by petty ideas with no importance. And in a society that's already addicted to light-hearted entertainment, such frivolity is just going to promote more complacency about the weighty, eternal things. The modern church is full of funny, amusing pastors And it detracts from our message. So if an elder isn't sober-minded, he's not going to be able to wake people up to the seriousness of what the Bible says. Therefore, he must be sober-minded. Next up is self-control. Therefore, an overseer, verse 2, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, that's what we just looked at, and now self-controlled. 
Self-control is prudence. It is discretion in decisions. Sensibility, being level-headed. Self-control is the mastery of desires. An elder's desires don't master him. He masters them. He puts them in proper place. He abolishes the unfitting or worthless and he promotes the good ones. On the other hand, the ungodly man is a slave of his desires. He works only to get money to feed his desires. If he can live without working, he'll try that. After work, he indulges in desires. On weekends, he caters to desires. He sees other people as a means to fulfilling his desires. I think you've seen this in ungodly people. And if he goes out with friends, one desire leads to another. Appetite to drink, drink to music, music to immorality, then to anger, quarreling, breaking promises, covenants, and so on. We've seen this. But because the godly man keeps his desires in check, he can make good decisions for others. One area of self-control is food and appetite. Another is drink. I'll say more about that in another sermon. And another area is money. Does desire for money drive him? Then he cannot be an elder. And in the area of sexual morality, he'll need to be chaste if he's unmarried, or if married, he'll still be obeying the seventh commandment and showing faithfulness within marriage. Now there's more to say about self-control, and I, I fully anticipated that all of our young men would be with us this morning But there are still some, so I'm going to preach this just as I intended, uh, with a view to uh, not only the men who are here, but to the youngest men, the boys of our congregation. There's more to say about self-control, because the young men are those to whom God is commending the noble task of the eldership, in time, when they grow up, when God calls them to it, if he does. The time to learn self-control is now. Start with food. Eat a healthy amount, but don't stuff yourself. Overeating is the sin of gluttony. Ask, if you are a boy, what would you do if you had a whole bag of your favorite candy? And if the answer is, I would eat it all at once or eat until I got sick, then you're not exercising self-control. Eating too much at a young age, could easily translate into drunkenness at an older age because the same spiritual issue is involved, which is flesh-pleasing. The master sin that all of us fight against is flesh-pleasing. It's the sin that drives almost all of our other sins. And even though you may be a boy, you have to remember that he who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. And you and all of us have got to remember that our enemy, the devil, is very subtle. He doesn't come to us usually with the big sins. He comes with the innocent little sins. It's only a bag of gummy bears. You like them, you deserve them, so eat them all. Or it's only another scoop of mashed potatoes or pie or donuts. They won't hurt you. Well, whether they'll hurt us or not, that's not the issue. The issue is whether our body needs them and whether we'll favor pleasure more than God and commit the sin of gluttony. 
You see, the devil would be only too happy to make any one of us to have a God out of our own belly at a young age so that he'll get us hooked when we're older. Right along with gluttony is the sexual immorality of looking at women to lust after them. The time to practice the self-control of guarding our eyes is when we are boys. Because you don't learn it if we don't learn it young. In submission to the Lord Jesus, it will be much harder once a boy becomes a man. Boys, you can hardly ever control what a woman is wearing or what the girls at school wear. But you always have control of your eyes unless you begin to look and then you'll slowly lose control. Learn to look at women's faces. Look into their eyes and talk to them and treat them like human beings, as people. And don't look in a way that inflames lust. The worldly man says, well, why not? It's eye candy. Have as much as you want. But you remember what the Lord said. Whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart, Matthew 5.28. And you know from 1 Corinthians 6 that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. A man above reproach must master then his desires and his appetites. This includes the pleasure of video games, movies, and social media. The reason we like those things is basically the same reason we like food and drink. The chemicals they release in us are pleasurable and they're addictive. So whether gaming or even reading books or watching a movie isn't by itself sinful, anything can become sinful if it's the master and makes us the servant. Do not become addicted to your uh, electronics or hobbies. So boys and young men, the time to become a Christian is now If you're not one already. You'll not be able to master any sin. Or any desire as long as you remain outside of Christ. You'll have no sanctification unless you're first justified. Self-control is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you're to have a godly character. You need God at work in you. So repent of your sins. And believe on the Lord Jesus. And ask him to give you his spirit to help you with self-control. If you're walking life's path. And you sin as we all will. Repent of your sin. And do not go on sinning. And then walk by the spirit. And you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. I have directed this towards boys. But all of us must develop godliness. So, by faith in God, all of us govern and control our appetites. An elder must also be respectable, and you'll see that in the list. Respectable means well-ordered. It goes right along with self-control. It's, interestingly, the same word for how a woman should dress back in chapter 2. It's a, so, he means here a balanced life. A man has a respectable life when his priorities are in order. Worship. Marriage, family, work, it all comes together. Lastly for today, an elder must be hospitable. The word means a lover of strangers. And so this is a character qualification about taking people in 
to become their friends, to carry their burdens, and to meet their needs. Hospitality is a mark of grace. That is to say, it's a sign that God's at work in a person's life. Abraham brought his guests in and fed them a meal. Why? Because God was working grace in him. And hospitality is the ideal, not just for elders, but for every Christian. Total strangers are the people you've never seen before. Maybe they're the ones that arrive unexpectedly at church. Maybe there's somebody who arrives at your door. Be ready to be hospitable. Have some extra food for Lord's Day, lunch, so that if a stranger comes, you can invite him or her in to eat with your family. And not only are there these total strangers, there are the strangers of the congregation. There are the members or the adherents of the church who you don't really know well because your paths have not crossed. A healthy church is full of people who are always building their relationships, getting to know one another, and hospitality is one way. Likewise, the strangers in a congregation are those that we may find hard to love. Maybe loners, disabled, college students, awkward people, people who can't invite us into their homes, or people we may find hard to love. They're the people that might get overlooked unless you and I take the initiative and go notice them. And so, go ask them to dinner at your house, or go make a friend. Many years ago, I was an unhappy person when I went to Glasgow to work on my degree. I frankly had long episodes of depression. But what do you think the saints at Glasgow RP did? They were hospitable toward me. They invited me in, fed me, studied scripture with me, met me for coffee and so on. It was like having the Lord Jesus in the hands and the eyes and the voices of 75 members of the church or more. The hospitality meant the difference. And so the man who would be elder should demonstrate to the church that he is hospitable. He should be the vanguard of getting to know everyone, to talk to everyone, and to have them in his house, and his wife should be his helper in hospitality. Elders lead by example in bringing the strangers in. I think you'll find this interesting. A young Christian single lady recently contacted a real estate agent about purchasing a house. And the real estate agent was pretty sure she knew what the modern woman wanted. Big closets for lots of clothes and shoes and an expansive bedroom, a patio, so on. But what the young lady asked for was a house with enough space for her dining room table and a sitting room big enough to host the weekly Bible study at her church. And it confused the realtor, to be sure, because most of her clients were looking for houses to please themselves. This godly woman was seeking to please the Lord, and so to the best of her ability, she was selecting a house for hosting strangers and the church family in her home. She was thinking about having the kids of the congregation over. Would you buy a house with a view to being hospitable? And if God has given you a house and you're otherwise able... Are you blessing people with your hospitality? The elder has to lead by way of example. 
Well, let's draw it back to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the main thrust of this passage. Why must an elder show hospitality? It's because bringing strangers into his house is essentially what God has done for sinners. God has invited the unrighteous into his house and clothed them in righteousness. God has taken total strangers into his family. That's called adoption. Hospitality isn't adoption because the strangers don't become your sons and your daughters just because you have them in, but hospitality does invite strangers to join God's family. Hospitality shows those lost and the perishing that there is a place for them with God. It demonstrates the truth of the scripture that says, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will invite me in. Psalm 27. It demonstrates that God is the God of the widow and the fatherless. And if adoption is the very height of God's grace in which he transfers sinners out of their lost estate and from the hopelessness in the covenant of works, if he takes them as strangers who do not have God in this world into his family and gives them the rights and privileges of sons, if adoption, I say, is the very overflow of God's grace in which God brings people into his household, then hospitality is one way God shows all people the attractiveness of the heavenly life. To the unbeliever, hospitality says, Come in here, friend. Holiness is beautiful. And be comforted and rested and nourished because my God will supply all your needs. Separate from the world. You'll never regret it. And to the believer, hospitality says, God is our true Father. It says our love is genuine here in the church. We're here to go together to help one another on our journey to heaven, no matter how long or difficult the going. Hospitality puts hands and feet to the Lord's promise that there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for the sake of Christ or the gospel who will not receive now in this time a hundredfold and in the age to come eternal life. So these are encouraging things. And these are qualifications given to us because Christ cares for his flock. So let's be encouraged by them. Let's make it our prayer that God would continue supplying his church with elders of such character.